Hello and welcome back to the Quacked Out Podcast. It's been a minute, Reed. I'm Charlie. It, it has been a minute. <laughs> yeah, I am Reed. I forgot that bonus. Um, <laughs> how you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm about to head to Mexico in a couple days, which, you know, it's an oddly timed trip being in the middle of spring term, but uh, I saw you got a trip to the Final Four as well. Well, it's not a trip for you. You live in New Orleans, but what was yeah. that like? You got to give me some Duke UNC analysis. Oh my God, it was it was one of the best sporting events I've ever been to, for sure. Uh, I was pulling for UNC. Uh, I'm a Coach K hater, of course, um, as we were talking <laughs> about a little before we started recording. And I, yeah, it was just, it, you really could not have scripted that game better from start to finish, it felt like. Um, and it was a fun end to see that. And UNC, for people who haven't watched, I just loved that team so much because they played these five guys heavily uh, and they had just like a perfect college basketball mixture of like potential and like total dysfunction, uh, like a cripplingly overconfident point guard in Caleb Love or I guess <laughs> shooting guard who like, but then who also like hit the biggest shot um, and yeah. was like so important at times when, when they just needed like anyone on the floor to just like shoot a shot and feel confident that they were gonna make it, you know? Yeah, uh, when yeah. everyone was tight in the final two, like Caleb Love every time is like, I'm Damian Lillard, like let me pull this. <laughs> um, and then they have um, Manic, the the white guy who somehow yep. shoots way better on contested threes than open threes. <laughs> <laughs> and then Baycott, the center, is just a dog. Like, he had, like, oh, 23 man. boards. He was limping on one leg in, in both the Duke game at the end and then in pretty much all the Kansas game. So, um, yeah. I fell in love with that team a bit during their tourney run. Uh, so, so, that was a lot of fun. They also have Puff Johnson, which has to be the hardest <laughs> name of any athlete or probably person I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's his given name, but that's pretty sick. Well, they also, also have that with Leaky Black too. I mean, they got they oh, got yeah. all the names. <laughs> <laughs> the um, with that Baycott thing with him hobbling, I could just see the absolutely inept discourse that was about to unfold between like student athletes not getting paid, and then like, oh, look at the love of the game. These guys don't need to be paid. I can see that yeah. argument unfolding as he's like hobbling across the court. Uh, which I thought was pretty amusing. Yeah, that that is a good point. That is always the most toxic argument I think around college sports. It's like it's like both. It's <laughs> it's nice that he really wants to play, but also like you know he could he could have a little money. He could be able to afford a sandwich <laughs> at the local shop or whatever. Maybe given how many millions of people are watching the game. <laughs> but then you have moments where like remember when. Uh, this is kind of a deep cut. You remember when Luke May showed up for class mm -hmm. after like winning the national title yeah, and it was yeah. like a huge deal that he was showing up to class. It's like, all right, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that was, I remember that clip. Did you go to the title game too or just the Yeah, yeah, semi -games? I went to the I went to the nice. title game as well. It was awesome. I've never been to a final four before. Uh obviously. I mean, didn't get to go when Oregon won or anything, but uh it was a fun yeah. experience. It was cool. It was cool that kind of split of neutral fans, and especially the first game, like in the lower bowl. I mean, I was in the upper bowl, obviously, but um, of the was Super it hard Dome, to see? which was big. It was way better. I think than about I, this. It was all way the time. better than I thought it would be, actually. Um, huh. And we were pretty pretty far up there, uh, 
but it was cool to see the lower bowl they had split into the quadrants and they had the duke and unc right next to each other um and mm-hmm. but it was just cool to see those four fan bases and see like them erupt when they're on a or like stand up when it was a big possession and stuff it was really cool dynamic in there nice nice yeah man i'd love to go to a final four uh how much how much did your tickets cost i'm curious yeah i mean i i didn't i had the i had them like you know i had a friend who got them so i didn't pay it but mm. and i probably wouldn't have but i think for the first <laughs> the first final four like for the saturday with the two games i think it was like 250 um oh, but it was only 50 to get in the building uh for the title game so i had a I had a few friends hmm. like get tickets as well for that title game because uh, I think especially because Duke fans, of course, thought that they'd be around till Monday and then kind of like were panicked <laughs> to sell their tickets because the last thing they wanted to do was watch North Carolina. <laughs> um, and so it, it was actually nice. pretty cheap. And it's such a huge venue that, you know, supply, demand, all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds pretty fun. And yeah, I'd, again, I would love to go to a Final Four. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go to any of the games that were in Portland, even though like Gonzaga and UCLA played there. Right. It would have been nice to see either of those. But I, I think the, the get-in price was pretty high. It was definitely higher than Blazer games. Uh, you can get in Especially those Especially this year. This yeah. 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 I told you, I, I got into that. I got into one Blazer game recently. I think it was the Spurs game, literally for free. I just found tickets online like I, I literally searched like free blazers free tickets in <laughs> twitter and i i saw like a bunch of different people just giving away their tickets uh oh so that God. was pretty nice unfortunately i missed that trailblazing sale though i would have liked to get some of their some of their clothing anyways uh we've mentioned a lot of things so far none of them have been oregon football so we're gonna lead with the biggest news in literally a month i think it's safe to say definitely since we last recorded um because as many as you're probably finding out if you're a listener to this podcast there's not a lot of stuff going on in college football in february and and march unless you're a big nfl draft guy which i am not um there's really not a lot of football to pay attention to that's going on so tell us about this josh Connerly commitment i know you have a lot of thoughts on it yeah, I have, I have How, a ton, so come in come like, in and interject when you want. What were you going to say? One being like a walk-on commitment and 10 being like a Kayvon Thibodeau commitment. Where does this land for you on the excitement uh, scale? I think it's I think it's probably a 9 for me. Um, yeah, it's probably about a 9. I think the only thing missing is, is and I'll get into some comparisons because that's what I love to do, but um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, Offensive line has a little bit less flash to it uh, than other positions, right? You know, so yeah. it's not it's not probably um, you know the type of guy just because he's an O lineman that you're gonna have people making like highlight tapes about in ten years and like saying Oregon's their dream school because they watched this guy block there for three years in the same way mm-hmm. that they might say that about you know uh, Kayvon Thibodeau racking up sacks there. Or, or DeAnthony Thomas uh, is obvious, you know, parallel. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a little bit of, of that, but I mean, it's a five-star player and it was a huge commitment, you know, um, and a battle against the like main foe that Oregon has on the Pac-12. Um, so in that regard, it was huge. I think, you know, one place I always like to go 
uh, or try to go more so now is is kind of what recruitments did this feel like because I've followed Oregon recruiting for a long time and kind of as I'm like you know almost a historian of it at this point um I would call you that yeah so I think three ones that I that I kind of singled out that seemed similar to me the first one um was the DeAnthony Thomas recruitment that's what you I saw you know USC fans on message boards talking about in the immediate aftermath of it was the similar kind of like spurning the Trojans late for a West Coast guy that they think is theirs uh, mm-hmm. and specifically with the secret visit that Oregon was able to get on campus and that last weekend is totally what happened with the Anthony Thomas uh, and that was pretty awesome to see I think you know for people who don't know Oregon famously like brings the Anthony Thomas up through, you know, in the airport back in 2010, when this is a little less of a huge, you know, spectacle, it probably wouldn't Mm -hmm. have happened now. um, Because people really didn't know that it was happening until he was he was already announcing pretty much um, that he had made it up to Eugene. Uh, He, you know, went to the airport, I guess, in all Oregon gear was one funny thing from that DeAnthony Thomas time. Um, I think it was Alger had an awesome piece on that a while ago Tyson Alger Mm -hmm. yeah I remember reading that yeah if if you love Oregon recruiting definitely go find that um back on during his athletic days but anyways that secret visit played out again with Connerly here uh him and his dad came to Oregon's campus right before and it was you know that type of thing where there was these whispers going on um but then you know we we know the deal with these decisions how it often works and this is a little different because it's not during a, a official period where he's signing like, you know, on signing day where there's a quiet period right before or whatever. Mm-hmm. I forget the exact term for it, but where like, you know, you can't go in home and all this stuff. Um, and but in general, I think recruits like to take those last visits. And then it's pretty common for that last 24 or 48 hours. They like to go silent a bit and just focus on, mm-hmm. you know, what they want to do uh, and kind of tune out the noise. And Oregon was able to get that visit in and then kind of go into that quiet period. Uh, and it was very similar to DeAnthony Thomas, I think, in terms of just there's some quiet whispers, some feelings of confidence coming from Oregon and a little feelings from USC like we, you know, did we blow this? Did we not close out as strong as we should have? Um, but. I also think no one was going to quite believe it until Connerly walked out and put on the Oregon mm-hmm. hat. Mm-hmm. Um, Even when he did, I mean, these these days you see guys switching hats around so much. <laughs> they've already put them on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I had to watch till all the way to the end. You know. <laughs> that is a good point. Yeah, that's a good point these days. Um, but nah, man. Once I saw the Nike backpack, it was over. Once he pulled out that Nike backpack with the big Nike swoosh on it, it had to be Oregon. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's the obvious one. Uh, I already talked about, you know, a little why I stray away from that comp is just that DeAnthony was such a legend in in the area of L.A. um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, playing in the Snoop League and just like the whole aura around him being the Black Mamba and everything. Connerly is a bit less like a Trojan from birth uh, than DeAnthony seemed like kind of the (laughs) ultimate caricature of that. So that was like... uh, that that's a little bit of a difference. The uh, the next one that I go to is the Julio Florence commitment that happened recently, um, because it's you know it's a battle between these two staffs between 
the new Trojan staff and then what, what Landing and the Ducks have going on. Um, and mm -hmm. we saw, you know, Lincoln Riley lose a recruiting battle again. And this seemed like, you know, in the, in the way that with Florence, even though USC had some momentum in early January, uh, Oregon always kind of had a bit of an inside track, I think, because they already had his teammate Jaleel Tucker in the fold. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so they kind of were – it was a real battle, and both staffs were trying hard, and, and USC, you know, really wanted Florence. But Oregon had a trick in their back pocket that they kind of, you know, could win out with. And I felt like um, even though there wasn't as explicit of a link between Connerly and USC – really USC should have had that same, you know, had that same inside track mentality in this, it felt like, um, because, you know, back when Connerly was releasing his top six, right before he released it in early January, he was set to release a top five without Oregon in it after the staffing mm -hmm. changes. Um, and Lanning made an effort and, you know, devised this plan and, and gave a lot of it to Clem and you know, Adrian Clem obviously deserves the bulk of the credit for winning the recruitment, I think. Um, but Oregon was in the back of the pack, you know, and they had to really uh, finish strong to get this. Uh, and I'll go into the strategy a little more uh, and just kind of the style that Clem presented and why it was so, so cool for Oregon. Um, but I thought that this was a really big deal because I think, you know, the Florence win over USC was something to celebrate for sure. But there was a little bit of a feeling that, you know, Cristobal and, and that staff had done a lot of the legwork for Florence's commitment already. I mean, he was literally mm -hmm. a commit before and decommitted yes, yeah. and everything. <laughs> um, and you had Tucker in the fold, right? But with this one, you know, Cristobal didn't, didn't really do the legwork on Connor Lee. Uh, I mean, obviously keeping in, in contact with him and, and having Oregon be in front of mind at, at some point. But again, when Lanning stepped in the door, you know, Connerly wasn't an Oregon lean at that point at all. Oregon was outside of his top five at the time. So mm -hmm. uh, you really had to build this thing on your own and come from behind against a program in USC that, that seemed like they had an advantage for him and you know needed him bad, needed an offensive tackle uh, more so than they needed a corner in Florence. So you know that they you know, wanted Connerly. There's no, there's no kind yeah. of excuse there. There's no like, oh, well, we had Damani Jackson anyways. That doesn't exist with, yeah. <laughs> with Connerly at all. Um, and then the third one, uh, the third commitment that I think is, is worth talking about, this one didn't go Oregon's way, but I think uh, JT Tuamalau this last summer, you know, him being from the Seattle area, just like Connerly was, uh, it was really big. That's kind of, I think JTT and Connerly is the most similar that I felt going into this announcement, honestly. Um, yeah, same. Definitely. I, I kind of, everybody said like, it, it was kind of a foregone conclusion that it wasn't going to happen already. I mean, even the crystal mm -hmm. balls were like pretty much the same as they were for JT to Ohio state as they were for uh, Connerly to USC think maybe there yeah. were even more for Connerly to USC yeah exactly I, I think you're probably right they're almost exactly the same um you know and that it was consensus away from Oregon going into the announcement uh and I I would have to say you know shout out to to J-Hop for the work that he did um and his little update the day of and and how he tracked this recruitment the whole time 
and saying, you know, being kind of the only guy who really said Oregon's in this, you know, Oregon, this mm -hmm. is closer than people think. Um, and I think it's, it's really easy for people to, you know, roll their eyes at that sometimes when it's a team insider and say, oh, well, you know, of course, yeah, the, the recruiting board writer always says that it's closer than, than you think even, you know, and, and you never end up getting the guy or whatever. Look at the crystal balls. But I think for me, you know, I mean, I know I have a little more of an inside track, you know, or, or relationship with Justin than, than some other people do. Um, not that I know him super, super well, but I have a little bit more behind the curtain of what goes on. And like, J-Hop is, is legit. And I think that this should be, you know, should tell people a little more about like, you know, how really well sourced he is at Oregon yeah. and how much like, you know, this, he doesn't just feed people lines. Um, he's, he's well, yeah, saying of course, legit stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Saying? Like if he, you know, if he makes a prediction out of willingness for it to happen and telling what he, like, he's not going to tell readers what they want to hear because then he would just lose all his credibility if he's right. wrong right <laughs> i mean this again he he tells us stuff because he has actual sources like you're saying i mean and because yeah. he like you has been around recruiting for so long that he genuinely understands how this stuff works and when to make a prediction and when to not right exactly and and the nature of it is you know of course a guy who's who's a who's a recruiting insider for a certain team, you know, more of their misses are going to be in favor of that, of that team. But that's not necessarily because, you know, they're catering towards their audience as much as it's about sourcing. You know, if your sources are with mm -hmm. these guys and they feel good about it, you know, and you hear the most from the Oregon staff, it's your job to kind of weigh those things out. Um, and I think J-Hop has proven to have a really good track record at, at sorting through that information. But of course, you know, if you're going to miss, probably it's going to be by the guys you're closest to, you know, believing them a little too much or whatever. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, in this case, I think it was kind of, I mean, to have it actually come through was, was, first of all, I mean, most people care more about Oregon football, actually, than the po politics of how people feel about various <laughs> recruiting writers. But I will say, like, um, I think it validated and, and should serve as, like, something to take notice of, of how the JT to him allow recruitment was covered as well. Uh, because I said after the fact, it was a lot closer than people thought. And I know a lot of people said, you know, he was never coming to Oregon. Like, I just think that's not the way you can think about these things. And that's how people would have said, you know, that's what people would have said if Connor Lee had gone to USC and he didn't end up doing that. So that proves that, you know, there was some real smoke to the Oregon, you know, Oregon's momentum in this thing, and it ended up being fire. Um, so I, I think that's worth saying. I mean, some people, like I have to say, like Andrew Nemec on Twitter, he, he blocked me again. I don't know what that guy's deal is. <laughs> but I mean, that guy literally said, like he said with JTT that Oregon never had a chance. You couldn't find a source to say that. I mean, I, I literally have sources, had a source in the HDC who like day of said that there were good feelings for Oregon. So it's not that hard to find an Oregon source that thought they were in it for JTT. And Nemec said again that Oregon had no shot with Connerly and they got him. So learn, you know, take these things and, and try <laughs> to learn who to believe people. And especially when, when in recruiting, when someone comes out and makes a definitive statements, like 
they're just doing it to be provocative at some point and and because of like a yeah. sense of ego more than it is like uh, it i just it's so ridiculous isn't, isn't it funny how that works that the gatekeepers are the ones who like tend to get stuff wrong more often right yeah I, I, right. I just think that's kind of funny <laughs> right <laughs> it shows you something <laughs> like also i i want to make something else clear too and we'll go back to Connerly in just a second but um considering like you said the politics of just organ writers in general i mean it's an inclusive community like yes technically i mean us doing our scoop duck thing and like the 247 guys and Kripia with the oregonian technically we're all like we maybe should be should in quotes like competing with each other and be at each other's heads you know to get the best information and get it out as quickly as possible and get as many eyeballs on their stuff as possible but in reality like these are people's jobs you know right like there there's a group of of journalists that like go and play basketball once a week with each other like they're not at each other's heads to get this perfect scoops and all this stuff um so in and linking that to this like Again, J-Hop is not going to say something if he doesn't believe it. Right. He, yeah. He's not trying to like get more clicks than 247 by making a provocative statement or something. Like, right. He knows, what he, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, and, and all the, you know, the, the sites, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure some people don't care about this, so we'll get back to Connerly in just a second. But the sites also work in different ways. And J-Hop said before, like, mm -hmm. you know, Scoop Duck's subscription base, which, which gives him some more leeway to be credible with information to not, you know, drive clicks and mm -hmm. things because, like, it's based on people trusting his information and, like, trusting the content more than it's mm -hmm. driven by, like, clicks you know and and just creating this form that's like so based on just like getting someone on the page for a bit and seeing a few ads and whatever um but anyway so back back to connerly um <laughs> yeah yeah we took a nice little tangent there <laughs> uh i mean i think like i talked about this was a huge this this offensive tackle you know having a five-star offensive tackle out west that strung out his commitment you know past the signing day with two new staffs, like both programs needed this commitment so badly. Um, and, you know, just to underline like how good Josh Connerly is, I mean, 247 Sports and just their specific and, uh, you know, their specific site rankings has him as the eighth best player in the country. Wow. That's in, that's in, you know, I, I think some people don't realize that. Um, I mean, I, I guess I don't know how people see it, but like, you know, go at, all-time commits for Oregon. Connerly's eighth. He's right behind DeAnthony Thomas. Um, and That's crazy, man. Yeah, he's sandwiched between DeAnthony Thomas and Eric Armstead, like giants who, who played at Oregon. Um, and so he's, he's really, really good, you know, just as a player. Um, but, yeah, I, I think – so that was – huge there's no way around like how badly both programs needed it and especially you know usc needed that position at offensive tackle that's been the thing that they need to fix under lincoln riley uh, that takes a while to develop those guys and and then for oregon i think you know the other two names that i have to mention in terms of you know similar recruitments or, or recruits who come to mind in this is just the roster construction of oregon you think of the past two years, Oregon got Kingsley Suamatia and mm -hmm. Kelvin Banks commitments, right? And 
that was the future of, you know, okay, left side and right side of the offensive line, and then, yep. you know, yep. Banks maybe takes over left tackle after that, or whatever it is, and, and Walden somewhere in there, of course. But, you know, that was how it looked, and people had this idea about the offensive line going in this really positive direction after how good that 2019 group was and what an impressive mix that was of the, you know, experience that the, the group who came in in 2016 had and then mixed in with, of course, Penne, who was generational, um, Outland Trophy winner and all that. Um, yeah. But that momentum was totally kind of blunted by Kingsley transferring and Banks decommitting once Mario left. And the reality is that, um, you know, I, I kind of put it this way, I think in some senses because Oregon – you know, wasn't didn't have a crystal ball lead for the for Connerly because you know we thought we hired a defensive coach after we were outside of the top five for a five star offensive lineman from the state of Washington where we haven't had a track record of success recently. You know, mm-hmm. this probably isn't going to be our commitment to win. So in in that way, it kind of feels like a bonus for Oregon to get to get Connerly. But I would say importantly it's not redundant at all from a roster construction point like those guys if Kingsley and Kelvin Banks were still were at Oregon and Cam Williams you know and and that group like it might feel a little redundant you might say oh this is a huge pickup but maybe we're going to be like Georgia and our five-star offensive linemen are going to transfer in two years you know mm-hmm. um but now you know this is an Connerly is an important piece for the future of Oregon football and he has a path after this big, you know, experienced group that is going to play offensive line probably in 2022, and maybe Connerly gets in for some snaps. But year two opens up really, really clearly for Connerly to step into a starting role and be a super important piece for Oregon, you know, in the coming years of the landing era, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, <clears throat> Oregon already had three actually four now O-line commitments before that, I think, in uh, Michael Wooten, Kawika Rogers, and Davey Uli, all in the 22 class. I mean, that's, yeah, sure, a couple of them have three stars next to their name instead of four, but I'm pretty confident about that group so far. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't have a reason not to be. Also, I like what you mentioned about Washington because that's kind of a nice segue into something we want to mention. Uh, J-Hop just put out, his um, 10 recruits impacted by Josh Connolly's commitments, kind of a top 10 list of like the next steps in recruitment. Because as we had mm-hmm. mentioned a ton of times, we were re- like, this was a huge domino to fall. Not even yeah. domino necessarily. Like, this is what we've been waiting for for basically a month since we last recorded this podcast. Um, other than like the 15 minutes of practice that we get to see every so often, which we will cover in the second half of this episode. Um, this is really what we've been waiting on uh, as Oregon football fans um, was this commitment from Connerly. So if you want 10 more guys who are uh, going to be out there, go take a look. And more than half of them, or at least I think five out of 10 of them are from the state of Washington. Um, actually, I think six of them. So it's definitely a point of emphasis for the Ducks. And I think another thing that's nice to mention here uh, is that Washington wasn't really relevant down the stretch in this recruitment at all. Um, and you see Washington fans yeah. pointing that out quite a bit, and Oregon fans too, obviously. Like, 
all right, Kalen DeBoer, you know, you keep talking all this stuff about how, you know, okay, like Washington fans are willing to accept the smart, even the smart Washington fans of which, yes, they do exist. They're willing to accept the fact that DeBoer might not be the national like powerhouse guy. You know, he's not a hot name on the national coaching market. He's a G5 guy. He comes from Fresno and he's here to create Fresno North. Uh, and I'm not right. using that as like a bad term. That's like literally what's happening. And to do that, your strategy isn't to recruit guys from all over the country. It's to keep the best talent in your state in, in, in Washington. Yeah. Um, he said that. This is not something I'm making up. He said that when he got there. If you're not even in the running for Connerly down the stretch here, like that is not – and considering he had the same timeline as Landing, that's right. not a good sign, right? That, that's very, very bad. And I know that Washington hasn't really been on the radar of those top guys in the past. I mean, you mentioned JTT last year. Like, again, they weren't uh, – Washington wasn't in his top five at the end of it. Or maybe they were, but they weren't yeah. even really considered. Right. Um, seriously? Like, this is not looking good for the boys up north. And I think that's something we have to keep in the back of our minds when we're discussing all these Washington commits – or potential commits, recruits is what I should say. Uh, especially Jaden Wayne, but um, yeah. talk to me more about uh, unless you have any thoughts on that. But I want to ask you about Adrian Clem. Yeah, well, well, quickly, I'll just say, you know, on Washington, I just would say, like, there, whatever Washington fans want to say, there's no excuse for for not yeah. being a factor. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there just isn't one. Um, and I think also I'll say on DeBoer, like, um, I don't hate DeBoer as a coach. I think people look at it as like. In a vacuum, they try to evaluate coaches and say, is this a good coach or a bad coach? I think that he's why I didn't love the hire, and I didn't even hate the hire as much as some people did or whatever, but I think it was a bad fit for what Washington needed um, Mm -hmm. because there's different Mm -hmm. stages in a program's development, and they needed a culture and talent builder. You know, like like if you had a, a copy of Cristobal that Washington could have hired, that's what would scare me because you know in four years they're they you know they would start stacking talent immediately in four years they'd have a roster and if you hired mm-hmm. DeBoer then you know he he's pretty good schematically I think he can you know like what he did at Fresno in terms of just winning football games was impressive but you yeah. have to it's, it's a different game you're, you're not going to get to that point in the Pac-12 if you're at a talent deficit I mean even look yeah. at a guy like Chip Kelly and the difference between what he did at Oregon and UCLA and obviously there's a timeline difference there and and his scheme was a little bit less innovative by the time he got to UCLA but he was set up well as you know he was a small-time coach with an innovative offense uh, and he was set up well by t- inheriting a program that was supremely stable under Bilotti and talented uh, and ready to have that, you know, match lid and to kind of take off. And Washington just is not that at all. You know, they are, yeah. they need so much of this legwork from recruiting and, and culture and just like rehabilitating the brand of Washington exactly. in exactly. Seattle and in the greater state in the Northwest and, and nationally even. Uh, and I just don't, you know, DeBoer, I don't think he's up to the task of doing that. And this recruitment is, you know, there's just, how are you not in it? How are you not at least a factor in it for this hometown guy? 
to be able to sell a vision to him. Um, yeah, and sorry, let me close it yeah, out yeah, with one more ahead. Washington comment. Oregon fans already know what the <clears throat> we already know what the advantages are that we hold over Washington. That mostly being like uh, a actual national brand and not telling yourselves you have one. I think the Go Dogs thing is a perfect example of this. <laughs> recently, um, like you know, having national relevance instead of feigning it. But yeah. let's not get it twisted. I mean, UW has a natural talent advantage in their state over Oregon, for sure. I yeah. mean, you only get – you don't get recruits of Connor Lee's caliber coming from Oregon, like, ever. And you certainly don't – I mean, when it happens, Oregon is always going to be a factor in that. Now, obviously, because there's much larger volume of guys of – you know, not of that caliber, but of four-star caliber in Washington. It's a bigger, it's not as big of a deal for them to hold down each guy, but you want to hold down the best guys. And that is the advantage you, you know, you have the using the natural talent advantage in your state looks like recruiting those guys, scouting those guys before anybody else. Right. And I mean, you know, I guess you can't put that on DeBoer. Necess- you can't put that part of it on DeBoer because he wasn't there to, 10 years ago to start scouting Josh Connerly, but um, I mean, you're right. They need an ace recruiter in there. I mean, shoot, they could become what Oregon was in on the field if they could like recruit well, because they have a huge talent base to choose from in Washington. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not even the fact that it's not a possibility is, is relevant there. All right. I'm done talking about Washington. I'm done. <laughs> um. Yeah, so on 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 Adrian Clem, uh, obviously J-Hop did it did another great article, kind of detailing how this thing got done. Um, but I mean, Clem was you know this is what he was billed as. His style in, as a recruiter is a little bit unorthodox, you know, in that he picks his five to eight guys and he focuses on them. And he builds these, you know, strong relationships with them. And it's just about, you know, showing up and being consistent and being real. Um, and I think, you know, that that's what won out in this recruitment. Honestly, uh, ultimately, I think it's, you know, a little bit of like a tortoise in the hare situation where Clem was just so damn consistent and, uh, you know, real and building steadily building this relationship and not rushing on day one and saying, okay, we're going to drop this, you know, huge NIL deal or something, which hasn't been Oregon's MO in recruiting in this era, you know, regardless of what you see on Twitter. Um, and mm-hmm. it, I think it was just, you know, it kind of validated like that that style of Clem still works for him, at least. It doesn't work for everyone. You know, I, I think in general, I like offering a lot of guys and, and seeing how things play out because, this is an unpredictable business, you know, in recruiting. But ultimately, it was pretty amazing to just see Clem take this one on and kind of put Oregon on its back in this big kind of public commitment uh, and and get it done. You know, I think Mm -hmm. it was about it it wasn't about anything big. It was um, but just the quiet confidence that I think he operates with and coming back to the sport, having ties on the West Coast, being a former offensive lineman himself, you know, uh, who came up on the West Coast and played on the West Coast and had, you know, a NFL career go off of that. 
like there's things he can speak to and a certain level of relatability that he has that proved really important in this recruitment. Um, and so it just made me excited for, you know, what the future is there and made me feel like this thing is starting to work. You know, the staff is starting to fall into place. I think it was just such a huge momentum builder for the fan base as a whole because, you know, you dial the clock back to three months ago now um, to kind of early January or even before that when these staffs were coming together and everyone in, in the college football world was freaking out about USC and how this was the best hire in the history of college football. Uh, and it was a big hire, right? But, you know, Oregon was a fan as a fan base and as an organization, and as a staff has been clear the whole time, probably more than any other team in the Pac-12 that Oregon wants to compete with USC. Even if mm -hmm. they have Lincoln Riley, even if USC is back, Oregon says we want to compete, you know, and that's not about, for me, how, how I interpret it isn't, you know, just puffing your chest out and making all these statements about, oh, we're going to kill USC, we're going to do this, you know, take, take back the West or whatever, you know, hashtag or any, anything like that. It's, it's about, like, we're going to stand up and say, this is the standard that we want you to talk about Oregon football against. You know, we want to be measured against USC and, uh, and teams that are even better than that, that are playoff teams, and say, like, that's what we see Oregon football as. Put us up there. And, you know, if we don't, if we don't hit that level, then you can talk about us off of that. But we're damn sure not going to play around and just be, you know, hoping for the scraps like a bunch of the other Pac-12 teams are doing. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think this was a really exciting time to kind of get that win on the big stage for all parts of Oregon, uh, for the fan base and for the staff as well, um, and kind of just have some positive energy. Uh, and, you know, in contrast to something like uh, the Overton commitment, which we hadn't even touched on, but five-star <laughs> who also, uh, well, I guess he was 2023 reclassified to 22 defensive lineman ends up at Texas A&M. And, you know, I shied away from talking about that too much because just in, in reading it and, and, you know, being around recruiting, I just didn't think that that was probably going to go Oregon's way. But um, still, you know, you could tell that Oregon put it and the staff put out a really good faith effort on that, you know, and did a lot of what they could short of offering him millions and millions of dollars in NIL to make a battle there and to be hanging around if something happened at A&M, you know, and be that second or third team or whatever. Uh, but ultimately, it's about results. And so I think it, it was nice that, you know, Oregon and the staff did the same thing in this recruitment, you know, and battled hard. Um, but to get that result gives us a moment to, you know, celebrate the program, to come together with the fan base and the staff that's kind of still integrating and getting to know each other. Um, and just kind of like, you know, celebrate the work that they have put in and recognize like some marker of success that comes out of that. Because, you know, you look at like the relationship that was built between the, the fan base and Mario over time and, whether it, well, it, at the end of it kind of, you know, has been a little frayed since he left and, and with the loss to Utah and everything um, and some of the quarterback concerns last season, and, and we've all been over that. But I think 
how Oregon's fans for a while really started to identify with, with Cristobal and those Ducks was because of, you know, going into battle in these big games and the 2018 UW game and even the Auburn game that was lost in, in 2019 UW and the Utah game uh, for the Pac-12 title game and the Rose Bowl and, like, the Ohio State game, obviously. Like, having those big moments on the field where you kind of, like, go in, you kind of get yourself into, at least I do as a fan, get myself into a little bit of, like, a... Uh, it's almost like a fight or flight response for me. Like I get amped up for games, even as a fan um, and I'm am, am like, okay, let's do this. Like, these are our guys. Like, and, and when you have success in those moments, um, you get like start to identify and feel more confidence and there's more synergy in the fan base, I think. Uh, and I think that was a cool moment, you know, mini little moment like that to have in spring. Because obviously, you know, Ducks Twitter and stuff, when left to its own devices without much news, is going to start, you know, poking fun at each other and making memes and talking about whatever. And, you know, I, I think all that stuff's in good fun. None of it's too serious at the end of the day. Um, but yeah. it, it was but still cool to have quick, something to you, celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. And you hit on something there that I meant to mention earlier when we were talking about JTT is that this recruitment didn't necessarily remind me of another recruitment or a commitment as much as it did the Ohio State game for whatever weird reason, right? Because every article in the world is going to tell you Connor Lee is a heavy USC lean because yeah. they'll go look at the 247 crystal balls and see all the six or seven USC ones, whatever it was. Um, and, you know, like the Ohio State game, if you read any preview, you'll look it up and realize that Ohio State is the favorite. Um, and even though it's a, you know, only a two-touchdown favorite, I say only like that's not <laughs> a pretty big difference, but... I mean, seriously, like, we still won the yeah. game, like, somewhat comfortably even. Uh, it was only a little bit of scaredness towards <laughs> the end. Like, you still woke up before the game with a feeling of, like, oh, boy, I really don't know if this is going to happen, but I'm yeah. still going to watch it. Um, and so in, in my consumption of this recruitment, that's kind of the sense I got from it. But, yeah. I like, I like that comparison a lot. I hadn't thought about that. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, it, it does feel a lot like that game and that sense of no one really believes that Oregon has a shot here, but hell, you know, I, I'm still going to show up as a fan and let's see what happens. And then, you know, the, the feeling of actually coming out on top, whether it's in the game or, or this recruitment, uh, is a unique feeling as a fan and, and kind of, I think brought this fan base together a bit, uh, in a mm -hmm. cool way. Yeah, and, definitely. Yeah. Um, okay, last last thing I think, just moving forward uh, in the recruiting side before we get into practice notes, I do want to just say a little bit, you know, what's on the table here. J-Hop obviously had his 10 recruitments that this one impacts, um, and that goes into a lot more depth than I will, so, you know, go check that out for sure. Um, but I think the two things I look at um, as general categories, first, you know, what does Oregon need? A quarterback always in this sport, you need a quarterback. Um, in talking, you know, smack talking with some USC fans in the immediate aftermath of it, you know, they kind of were like, oh, this doesn't matter until you have a quarterback. Mm -hmm. um, it was a classic retort, which is, you know, easy to say when you have Caleb Williams taking <laughs> over, I think. Uh, I probably would, would say the same thing. 
but I think Oregon's in a fine position in terms of quarterback in general. I think that two things make me feel that way. One, with this staff specifically, you look at the Nico recruitment, uh, and yeah, you know, Tennessee came came in uh, and dropped eight mil on him, and that won out in the end. But uh, I'm there's a lot of promise in the fact that Oregon was in the lead of that recruitment before that happened, uh, and some sense that they can replicate that type of momentum with a top quarterback again. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane and Rashada then, being the main right there exactly um and you know then you know oregon oregon is not you know doesn't have a reputation as a place that quarterbacks go to die either uh (laughs) even though herbert was you know underutilized i guess but oregon has you know with herbert in the league and mariota's heisman and what a big impact that was uh and just you know go down through the line dan fouts joey harrington dennis dixon like a lot of good quarterbacks have come through Oregon, and I think people generally respect it as, as for whatever reason, uh, a place where quarterbacks have succeeded and a place that quarterbacks are drawn to. Um, I also don't think that the talent on the roster right now is horrible at quarterback, but in terms of recruiting, you know, I think you also look ahead and you say, okay, you got a left tackle, that's got to make a quarterback feel good. And then, you know, you think about who we've talked about as a receiver duo and Jurion Dickey and Kyler Casper, and you think maybe those guys are added coming up in the spring. Hopefully, we'll see, obviously. Um, but if you do that in the spring, you start to put together this really kind of exciting supporting cast where a quarterback feels like plug and play. You know, they don't have to do all this heavy lifting of, okay, yeah, I could go there, but I'm going to need to recruit this receiver to come with me. That's going to be important. It's like you come in, you're the final piece of the puzzle, you know, that makes this whole mm-hmm. thing go. Um, and a guy like Jaden Rashada is obviously, you know, at the top of that list right now, it seems like. Um, and secondly, we talked about the state of Washington. Uh, there's an extensive list of names that J-Hop included in those 10 recruits. Uh, but, you know, let's see what I'm, I'm kind of looking up at Washington, like you said, and keeping in mind what's going on or not going on with DeBoer up there and thinking like, hey, maybe there's a chance for for a real pipeline here as that state grows in talent, and maybe we can Mm -hmm. leverage the fact that DeBoer doesn't have this much momentum. Um, And so, you know, the two guys that you look at big time are Jaden Wayne. He's the headliner from the state. He's a potential five-star who um, this isn't going to hurt with. You know, it's going to catch his attention. And and Oregon already, I think, was – probably in the lead uh, for him, most people feel like, you know, still some ways to go, but mm-hmm. in a really good spot. And then Caleb Presley, cornerback, um, man, that would be an awesome addition. He was Josh Connerly's teammate, actually, at Rainier Beach, uh, and also, I think, was at his announcement. So yeah. those those two are the biggest ones I looked at. They're not the only names in Washington, though. Um, and just Gets to kind of... ducks to fly south. I can see the uh, catchphrase now. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, and, yeah, just to close out recruiting talk, you know, spring game still is the day to highlight, uh, or that weekend, I guess I should say, for recruiting. And then I would also just say, in, in general, a trend that's really important about recruiting that I think, you know, these commitments just get bigger and bigger to me every year when you have a major one uh, in an area where, you know, there's other talented recruits around, 
because recruiting is really a different game than it was 10 years ago. These classes are so interconnected now because the recruits are interconnected. They go to camps together. Seven on seven scenes have blown up over the past 10 years to the Mm -hmm. point where you don't have to go to the same high school to know each other really well. Uh, And, you know, all these guys are on Twitter way more than they were you know, five to 10 years ago and interacting on Twitter and sharing highlights. And so I think, you know, those ideas about building an identity to a class and kind of having it be build some momentum that people are like attracted to is it's starting to become like more and more of a thing where classes, recruiting classes aren't just made up of like 20 different recruits making these individual decisions, walking through their daily lives, you know, isolated in their high school and figuring out what's best for them. It's about like, you know, what does, what is this Oregon class mean? What is this Oregon class going to do? You look at like what the Cali flock was in 2019. You look at what, you know, the 2021 class was and how they rallied around, you know, having a championship potentially and Ty Thompson and that receiver class and everything. So I think like, there's more and more and more I feel like there's a lot of momentum on the recruiting trail to be built from getting one big commitment, you know, and, and to say that like there's other dominoes that these are linked to. They're not just like separate things as much anymore, I feel like. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the two guys you mentioned from Washington, uh, Jaden Wayne and Presley, yeah, uh, both 23 guys. Is there anybody else you're really looking out for in the 22 class or can we put a wrap on things uh yeah i think i think the 2022 class is should be wrapped yeah should be wrapped um there's been a lot of of roster uh you know turnover recently with a few transfers and stuff um and i'm just and and some additions in terms of uh walk on quarterback and fullback um and so I wonder if there's going to be some tinkering there with non-scholarship guys continued. Uh, but I've been impressed by kind of what's been done so far and mm-hmm. the management to get this, this roster, you know, under the 85 scholarship mark and kind of, you know, cut off in position groups where there's a little too much and balance out the class numbers in terms of the age of guys at different position groups. Um, but, yeah, I, I think this is going to, you know, be it. I mean, Connerly was really one of the last holdouts in – in 2022 uh at any level let alone as a five star so Mm -hmm. because that's another just generally i like mentioning that because there's it's one of the things i always struggled with when i was getting into recruiting was like okay now when does this class like actually end (laughs) next one begin and stuff so there's so many moving parts i mean there's really no concrete answer to those things but um right exactly you since i I knew you would (laughs) be able to know (laughs) yeah um it is the the calendars are so weird and now i mean like with with this and obviously jtt going into july last year and it can be super confusing and you know you get a commitment from usc just got a commitment in 2024 and people are like when does that guy even play yeah. it's two years from now so yeah yeah but um but yeah it seems like this is a wrap and Connerly being 2022 for i mean i assume people who listen to us know but you know as a guy who will be on on campus probably in in june or july and uh and will be eligible to play this season you know i mean there's some there's some guys ahead of him in the offensive line room or some guys with experience but we'll see because he he is really good um 
the next i don't know if it'll be half of this episode uh but the next part of this episode we're going to focus on the players who are with the program uh and who are actually in practice because yes spring practice is happening no you will not hear like program altering changes that come out of spring practice you will never hear coaches talk about anything bad that happened during spring practice uh it's funny we were putting together a list of like guys whose stock is rising and maybe guys who are falling and i was struggling to come up with guys who are falling because nobody's ever going to tell you like oh yeah this guy isn't where we need him to be yet or like this guy isn't uh up to the standard that we set here or this guy is out of the rotation um no it's always you know (laughs) concerns are always broad they're like oh what you know tony tuioti said this the other day and i I just thought it was hilarious because the most coach speaky thing you'll ever hear he's like we're not playing up to the standard yet and i i can't remember if someone followed him up or i just dreamt this or thought this later like somebody should have followed up and asked him like who who isn't up to the standard because it's yeah. not the entire room like i know that's not the case like it's, it's got to be a couple different guys but anyway so yeah i mean with a lot of this stuff like sometimes it sounds sort of conspiracy theory e to doubt almost everything coaches say but it's not a bad strategy if you're looking for the truth um yeah. so yeah anyways there are a lot of things we've learned in practice you, you got something to say real quick well, yeah, I think just on that, I think, you know, more than anything, it's just the nature of it is you, you're going to hear more good tidbits that you can kind of take and, and learn something from than you're going to hear the negative, you know, feedback that you learn something from. So, yeah. you know, it, it means something when some when a coach singles out a player positively, but you, you're rarely going to hear the inverse of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of practice notes that are shrouded in secrecy, Let's start at the top. I think we got to lead with Ty Thompson. Um, there was a lot made about him taking first team reps at uh, the first scrimmage. So real quick, for those who aren't familiar with this process of, of like what covering practice is like, uh, you, meaning me, the media, <laughs> we, we kind of huddle around in like the HDC courtyard or whatever, chat a little bit. Again, like I said, there were a community like, people are friends they talk to each other um and then like the sid comes through you get your little vest you get your little media bib uh makes you feel all important you know and then they walk you down like the little ramp and you're on the practice field and practice is already going at that point you've already seen the players like walk out there and stuff they're doing warm-ups and everything uh so you watch them finish warm-ups and then you get 15 minutes of whatever the coaches think is unimportant enough to show the media um and i don't blame him to be honest like if i'm a coach if i'm a coach i'm not gonna like give you something i'm not gonna give stuff to go off of you know uh that being said this is spring so like if you're ever gonna have a live action scrimmage during a practice to create some buzz now is the time and that's exactly what dan lanning did so reed i'm gonna ask you this if you were dan lanning and you were throwing said uh impromptu scrimmage during a practice you know scheduling it during the 15 minutes of media availability of which you could wait and do it like in an hour or something who would you have take the first team reps at quarterback to create the most buzz 
well, to create the most buzz, to, to make your lives easiest in terms of writing up click-worthy stories, it's got to be Ty Thompson. It's got to be. Yeah. <laughs> now, what if I also told you that uh, those first-team reps are, are a first-team with an asterisk? They're kind of mixed in with other guys. You see what I'm getting at here, right? Like, right. Landing is kind of taking us for a ride. Now, here's the thing. Ty did pretty well in the two scrimmages now that we've been able to see. They call it fastball. So I, if you hear me say fastball, it's referring to the same thing. Um, he's looked pretty good in the couple scrimmages we've gotten to see. And he's looked pretty good in the, you know, all the quarterbacks are working off to the side anyways, like in throwing during regular practice. Um, and honestly, I, I know that the common sentiment about the quarterback room is that oh, well, if Bo Nix was brought in, there's no way they're going to bring him in and that he isn't going to start. I'm just not buying into that the way some people really are. Now, if I had to put money on it, then yes, I'm going to think it's Bo starting day one. But, I mean, we just saw a scenario. We just talked about Josh Connerly committing to Oregon after having six USC crystal balls. I would not count Ty out of this one. Um but I'm assuming you have some thoughts on Ty's situation as well, so I'd love to hear them. Yeah, well, part of it comes from, too, the, the interviews and availability we've had. Um, I think it was Dillingham talking about, he, in, in his interview that he did with media, um, he was talking about, you know, why does he find coaching quarterbacks so rewarding? Uh, and he talked about that moment when, it, when they get it, you know, and they're frustrated and they, they haven't known why, how to, why did it, uh, set up this protection or how to dissect this coverage and then it clicks and they call you at night and say you know oh I, did I get it right and he's like yeah you did mm-hmm. uh, and that seemed like that didn't seem like a random story you know yeah or like he didn't name well he didn't <laughs> name the player either but I know right. what you're gonna say so keep going yeah it, it seemed pretty it, it seemed people kind of put two and two together pretty fast and were like was he talking about Ty Thompson, you know, and, and people went over and Ty had an interview similar at the similar time and kind of asked him, you know, in, in general terms, you know, about a similar situation. And, and Ty kind of spoke to it that it seemed like that probably was what happened and that things were clicking from Ty in terms of how this offense works. Um, and, yeah, I mean, with that mixed in with the first team reps, uh, and just how much talent we think he has. And, and also, I'll just say, I mean, it's been really cool to just hear the, the, the presence Ty has, the way he carries himself, his maturity about Bo Nix coming in, uh, and just seeing that as an opportunity to learn from someone with experience and, you know, work to elevate each other and not have it be, you know, there's an aspect of competition, but not have it be a destructive competition. Uh, mm-hmm. have it be one where, where they both have, you know, the same goal of improving in mind and work together on that. Um, and, you know, also credit to Bo Nix, who was, from all reports, really positive in a, in a quarterback competition at Auburn and seems to have carried over that same, you know, mature mentality uh, during his time at Oregon now. Um, so, yeah, the I mean, Ty, Ty is – someone that Oregon fans have had a lot of faith in uh, or a lot of optimism for, I guess, high hopes for. Uh, And so to have him not win the quarterback competition last year 
uh, and not really see those big reps um, in any game situation where, you know, something was on the line. I think that we're all hopeful that, you know, he comes through and I think people feel like in general the ceiling of this team would be highest if Ty is the quarterback. So uh, that's that's a super positive development, the kind of buzz around Ty that we've heard over this past week or so. Yeah, definitely. As as is our official uh, understanding as a podcast, um, it's always better to have more talented quarterbacks in your quarterback room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next guy I want to talk about is also in the offensive backfield, although he's not throwing the ball, he's carrying it, and that would be Sean Dollars, although I would also note that he sometimes catches it as well. Uh, in one of these fastball segments, he, he caught the first pass and took it to the house on the first play um, on a wheel route, so that was pretty cool. Uh, but Sean Dollars is, was the first guy mentioned by Dan Lanning the other day as really standing out in practice. Um, let me let me pull up the quote real quick. He's he's kicking it up. He's taking it up another notch, is what he said, uh, in the last two practices. And you know, usually that might, you know, okay, cool. Dan Lanning mentioned that a player was doing well. Like, no way, Charlie. I thought you just said that that didn't matter. Well, it's different when they're singling out a guy that he says is doing well, um, rather than just throwing out a general blanket statement about the team as a whole or the running back room as a whole or something like that. Um, and obviously we are <laughs> the, we should almost be the Sean Dollars podcast as well, because we've been on this dude for years. And I mean, he's kind of slated to be in the RB two spot with Byron Cardwell and the RB two certainly gets more reps than QB two, generally speaking. So right. I think it's safe to say we'll see a lot of John Sean Dollars this season. Let's call him John Dollars. Um, what do you think of his development? And I mean, do you have any more Sean Dollars thoughts? Well, I mean, just wouldn't it be awesome to have a really bona fide one-two uh, in the running back room? I mean, we yes, we all would. feel so uh, good about and excited about, you know, the potential there with Byron Cardwell as, as the main guy. But Sean Dollars is a ton of talent as well, the former top 150 recruit um, and, you know, who had – who was coming on strong uh, at the end of 2019, you know, um, going into that Rose Bowl, he got a few looks early. I think he had to drop and they kind of went away from him. But, you know, it was clear that at the end of his freshman campaign, he was starting to put things together. Um, and then, you know, last year or in, in the COVID year, he had that breakout game in the Pac-12 title game against USC. Uh, and so it was such a bummer to not get to see him last year. Um, but I think there's still a lot of potential there. And hearing that he's putting things together, uh, I just think there's a lot of potential for excitement and really dynamic running back play uh, with him and Cardwell together that I'm excited for. Mm -hmm. uh, another big development of someone who's back from injury, uh, Alex Forsythe is back, which is always good to see. Yeah. Don't really need to throw anything more onto that, except that uh, the O-line is extremely experienced coming back. And I feel like we haven't talked about this enough. Um, TJ Bass, Stephen Jones, Sala, Alex Forsyth, and Ryan Walk, all guys who essentially started last season. I didn't. Even, I even left out Dawson Jaramillo in that. Um, and then obviously bringing in a guy like Josh Connerly who could play and who – honestly could start in the Pac-12. Well, maybe not start immediately in the Pac-12, but 
is close to starting in a conference like the Pac-12. Dave, well, Dave Uli, another huge guy. Like, Yeah, I mean, and with Connerly, you know, especially I think he could start if he was at not Oregon, right? You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if he was at Wazoo or something, yeah, I think they'd probably find a way to slot him in pretty quick. Um, but yeah, I think that O-line experience is definitely something that the more I hear from this group and kind of just putting it together in my head, I realize like this group is, is pretty battle tested. Um, football has been kind of so weird still, I feel like since that 2019 Oregon team uh you know 2020 was COVID and and that was the whole thing and then 21 last year felt like a real college football season for large parts of it um but you know it was whatever Uh, still still stuff going on and it was a weird season with distractions for Oregon in terms of you know quarterback play and all this stuff but I think you know through that whole time since 2019 you know now i feel like we're waking up in spring and it's a, and it's like oh there's a lot of experience on the o line again kind of like there mm-hmm. was going into 2019 uh these yeah. guys have been together a lot they actually have a lot of chemistry um and i think there's like you know a potential to be able to actually lean on this group in big games uh and have them take take oregon home a little bit um I mean, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Clem was really interesting and in kind of talking about how his philosophy differed a bit from Crystal Ball and Miraball, just in, you know, he doesn't like to rotate guys on the offensive line the same way. And mm-hmm. honestly, I mean, for me, in terms of my comments on here, uh, I, I don't know, maybe someone could find some receipts to the contrary, <laughs> but I feel like I've always kind of been like th- that decision or that distinction between rotating guys and sticking with a five is above my pay grade. You know, and I'm willing to <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to defer to what the uh, what the coaches think, uh, and maybe that sounds like flip flopping, but it's just being honest that I, I don't really yeah. ha- know enough to to make a definitive claim either way. And I think maybe there's merits both ways, or I'm just fine with the guys running what they're comfortable with. But it seems like it's going to be more of a five uh, this year, and it you'd guess that those five. Uh, you know that you mentioned with the experience are the leaders for that maybe walden maybe jackson powers johnson if he does switch back to offense and maybe connor lee are three guys that i think of like hey mm-hmm. uh, you know maybe they if they if break we need out you in a pinch yeah. right right um and real so, quick jpj yeah. is probably based on his he was available for uh Ironically, he was available with the defensive line guys on Saturday, and he the, the sense I got from him, I don't remember if he had a verbatim quote about it, but I think he's probably moving back to offense. Probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, he's willing to do either one, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Other positive takeaways from, from practice so far? Yeah, I'll go with one. Um, guy I love to talk about, Dante Thornton. I was a big Dante Thornton fan when he was being recruited. Uh, and it seems like he's, you know, stepping up a little bit, uh, in a leadership role and kind of, you know, go taking over with that receiver group. Um, and just hearing about that mentality that he has transitioning from his freshman year. Uh, I forget who was given the interview on this. It was, it was a former player. I wish I knew, um, or not a former player, current, another current player. Uh, but Anyways, I just had a lot of excitement about this running back room as a whole. Um, I think it was Ty Thompson, actually, who was talking about it. Or this mm. receiver room as a whole, sorry. 
Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, but Thornton and Franklin and Hudson, I just think I'm starting to feel like that trio can really be special this year um, and be one of the best receiver trios that Oregon's had in a long time. Um, and it just seems like a lot of those guys are making strides, right? I mean, I think the talent with Troy Franklin has been apparent immediately. I, I have not really worried that much about whether he's going to figure it out or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that with Thornton, I was a little more, I, I think I had saw really high potential for him. Um, but he was kind of, you know, he's bigger, uh, or taller, I guess. And, and it, you know, is it sometimes those things are like the perfect mix of size and speed and it works out really well. And then sometimes the guy kind of grows into his body in a weird way uh, and maybe doesn't put it all together. And it seems like mm-hmm. it's going the positive way for Thornton. Uh, and then Hudson is a guy at the end of last season who we saw really take on a new role and, and um, kind of shift from a mental perspective and step into a leadership role when Oregon was down at Utah get the big play in the Alamo Bowl. So I'm excited to see more of the same of, of what Oregon did in the Alamo Bowl with those three guys. I mean, that was so fun to see what they did. Um, and so, yeah, Thornton is Thornton is another guy that I have to mention because I've, I've been in his corner since he was being recruited, uh, and I'm super excited to see if that's a bona fide three starting uh, wide receivers, you know, what they mm-hmm. can do, how they can stack up in this conference and even nationally potentially. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they have the potential to be one of those elite receiver rooms in the country, and we've never really seen that from Oregon. So it would be really nice to have, especially with the arm talent that we have on the roster currently. A couple other practice notes. like This is noty as it gets. Like, J.J. Greenfield is back with the team, although he's a walk-on. He was had a scholarship but was out all last season, and we will never find out why. Um Taki Taimani is probably, not probably, he's going to be a nose tackle. He cleared that up in his interview recently. Uh, zero technique for people who understand what that is. Um, it, it just means you line up across from the center like Jordan Scott did, uh, which hasn't always been something on Oregon's roster, so I understand if you don't know that. But, yeah, anyways. Taki, you can label him a nose tackle in your spreadsheet, uh, or at least I can. And then you have one more note here, Reed, about uh, going under center, I think that was it was interesting. I can't remember who asked that question, uh, but it was a really good one because it's been a gripe of ours and of just Pac-12 fans who watch Oregon games in the past that like in super short yardage situations we never line up under center, even when it's like the obvious thing to do, even when you have Justin Herbert who can literally reach across the line of scrimmage, like from where he's standing and get the first down, <laughs> like. It still never happened, uh, and we think it might happen this season. Yeah, exactly. I, I forget that guy's name, too. He's asked this question to, like, every single spring for the past, like, seven years, though. I think it's the though. KEZI guy. Yeah. Sure. Um, I can't remember his name. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it, he asked that to Dillingham, and Dillingham basically said, like, yeah, that's an option, um, which was interesting to hear. I mean, a lot of people just yeah. – philosophically say no we don't want to do it especially not when you know 95 percent of our other stuff is all shotgun it's really uh more detrimental than it is positive some people say you know because we have to learn how to do this uh under center exchange and you know we're less versatile with 
the looks and packages that we have out of that, um, you know, for a whole number of reasons. But obviously the, the counterpoint to that is just sometimes you need a yard or half a yard and the most straightforward way to do it is to line up under center and just push forward uh, and, you know, win yeah. that shoving match and get it. Uh, and it's pretty much to point, your point way A to, to point inches. B. Yeah, you don't you really... just move it. <laughs> right, exactly. A um, uh, couple other so... notes. This this will be my last... Or unless you got something else on that. No, no, not really. I think, I mean, we'll talk a little more about Dillingham in, in general, but as a preview, it was kind of part of just his general philosophy which was to have a really flexible and adaptable scheme it seemed like yeah you know and his whole thing was oh well do you want a quarterback who can be dual threat well really we can have a quarterback who can be dual threat or they could just be a pocket passer and then you know oh are you going to throw <laughs> so a non-answer run it? yeah, yeah. <laughs> um Sick. yeah go ahead though uh this is my final just kind of super newsy note. Uh, if you haven't heard these guys' names lately and you're wondering why they're not in any of these practice reports, it's because they're not there yet. So they're, let's see, 10 or 11, I think 11 new guys who still are absent from the team, if I have that right. Uh, and they are Sir Mills, uh, Riley, Ro- Rogers, David Uli, Kawika Rogers, both Rogers. I don't know why I didn't specify. Jordan James. Marion Winston, Trajan Williams, Jaleel Tucker, Kamari Terrell, and Andrew Boyle. Uh, so if you haven't heard their names recently, it's because they're not uh, here for spring term. That's all. Uh, okay. We, started, we sort of just did all the semi-positive things that we're getting from spring practice, which obviously we can go on with an entire – we could go on with that list forever if we wanted to because – you're never going to hear anything bad coming from spring practice. Uh, but there are a few things we're concerned about. So real quick, let's just run through these. We want Let's start with Dillingham because that seems to be kind of the biggest concern with this program right now. Um, just because, you know, he doesn't have experience calling plays, and that is kind of a big deal. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, pessimistic hiring your friends sentiment about Dan Lanning and Dilly in this sense. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, which I somewhat understand. He hasn't really given us anything concrete to go off of. I mean, the sound bites he had were just incredibly bland. By the way, if uh, I, once again, I'm plugging Split Zone Duo, that's crazy, but uh, it's because they're really good. Alex Kirshner did a hilarious bit on a recent Patreon episode of Split Zone Duo about, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, your, your defensive coordinator, he's multiple. You know, they're going to run a lot of different stuff. The offense, dynamic. You know, mix of run and pass, and they're going to create explosive plays and really try to scheme guys open and put put their best players in one-on-one situations. And I thought it was really funny that he said that verbatim because that's exactly what Kenny Dillingham said uh, in his press conference as well. But um, what are your thoughts on Dillingham and why should or shouldn't we be concerned about this hire? Yeah, I I was kind of talking to you a little before we started recording and just, you know, the thing about Dillingham that stands out to me or or the vibes around him are if you're talking to an overconfident Trojan or Husky, you know, the thing that they're going to go with right now is, well, you're not going to win the pack because of Dilly, you know, Um, (laughs) or you you can't compete at Georgia because of Dilly's offense. 
I think it's, you know, it's become a common barb of theirs because of the lack of experience. Um, and, and the lack of other things to roast. Really. Right. Right. That's, <laughs> that is true as well. Um, but, you know, hiring a guy who, who landing was, had some connections with, um, with maybe not, you know, the, uh, how, how would I say this? Maybe not the resume that you would expect of the caliber of, of an Oregon offensive coordinator opening. Um, that's not to say it was a bad hire necessarily, but, you know, he doesn't have the track record that Joe Moore had had when he arrived at Oregon. Um, and he's got a unique energy about him uh, a little bit. You know, he's super eager um, and he's super quick. Kind of that interview was a funny, you know, just look into the type of person that he is. Um, but I'll say... Yeah, I mean, he's all about being flexible and adaptable with his scheme. Uh, and I think that in one sense, that's a bit of lip service and coach speak and, and kind of empty. Um, but I think at least from a recruiting perspective, some of the stuff that he said I thought was positive because I think when you're talking you know, to a guy who's a top receiver or top running back, uh, he has a certain way of delivering it, of just saying, like, he, he almost reduces his role, which sounds, you know, counterintuitive to be like, oh, I'm not that good of an offensive coordinator. I, I can't just scheme you open totally. But he mm -hmm. says, you know, it's about creating one-on-one -on -one matchups and letting those players take over. And I think that's what guys want to hear, ultimately, uh, yeah. is that they're just going to be put in a position to highlight themselves and to make plays. Uh, and win one-on-ones and just kind of be a dominant special player like a lot of these guys are used to being in high school. Does that translate into winning football games is another question, I think, that will be interesting. I mean, you know, people for the longest time with, with Chip Kelly um, in the early 2010s, you know, were like, uh, you know, is, I, I mean, especially people who are Beavers fans or whatever were like, oh, how good is Marcus Mariota? Everyone he throws to is wide open anyways, you know, and how good are these receivers? <laughs> They're wide open. And I think there's an aspect of that that was true that was, I don't know, you kind of lost sight of, like, the individual players and their plays at times um, because the scheme was just so good and guys were wide open. Uh, but, you know, I, I think hopefully if this works out well it gives people an opportunity to win one-on-one -on -one matchups um we'll see though right i mean i feel like it's a step into the great unknown with dilly yeah. uh and his l lack of ability to really you know nail down any one thing that makes his offense unique or gives it a total identity uh other than just that it's an offense for playmakers is interesting yeah. to try to decipher through. That's, I mean, it's that's no, definitely it's, the number one. It's nothing like Cristobal with, you know, we just want yeah. to run it down people's throats. But, yeah, what were you going to say? It's the number one thing I'm looking for in the spring game. And to be honest, like, pretty much everything we're learning from spring practice, like, my big upshot for it is what, what do we see in the spring game that confirms or denies this? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Dilly's a very active guy. Again, he's super young. Like, I, I think he's going to... I'm not, like, completely writing him off yet. Like, slightly doubting someone is not hating them. Uh, I think a lot of fans like to have a 
they have to have a take about something and have to defend it till the end all the time. And obviously that's not really my forte, but um, like you said, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what Dilly brings to the table in this spring game. And we'll see what these right. quarterbacks do too. Um, all right. A couple other things that we might be concerned about, uh, mostly injury. Well, all the rest of these are all injury related. Uh, Dante Manning was seen in a wheelchair after the last practice on Saturday media doesn't get to see the actual practice on Saturday because it's a scrimmage in Autzen. Um, but I can tell you he was driving after practice. So it, I mean, I don't know what that means to you. Uh, <laughs> that's a good nugget. You know, that's a good nugget. I, he didn't leave in an ambulance, I guess. So that's, that's great. Uh, Damon David has been nursing an injury. He's been in and out of pads in practices. I've been watching that. I've been watching him. Uh, as much as I can in, in practice. Uh, and Justin Flo has also been kind of off to the side in most of these practices. Now it's, again, just little notes at this rate. Like we're really getting down to the weeds here in terms of spring content. But uh, it is definitely noteworthy, and it's something to keep an eye on. Again, it's one of those things that will be kind of lost in the ether if you don't keep paying attention to it. Um, and then you'll be surprised one day when, when they show up. Uh, but... Yeah, that's true. Any thoughts on any of those? Well, I do think um, it was interesting to me and in, in talking to you just before that you said that Dante Manning would be, you know, on one of your, on your list of, of standout, you know, in that positive section. Yeah. Probably before this injury that he was looking good. And that was, you know, a bit bittersweet to hear, obviously, because, you know, I, I mean, that's that would have been huge to have him step yeah. into his role and realize a lot of the potential that he had. Um, yeah, man, he was balling out in the last practice that we've been available to see. I mean, he was really getting after it in drills, which you don't see, you know, a lot of these drills, like if you're ever going to take reps off, if you're a player, it's right now, because these are probably the least important reps you'll ever take. That being said, I mean, this is how you elevate your standard of a program is by having guys that want to go hard in, in the meaning quote unquote meaningless practices. Um, and Manning certainly did that in the last one we saw, I, I told you we had this massive, like they were doing this two on one tackling drill where like some poor little ball carrier, usually a walk on will get just absolutely <laughs> smothered by these two guys. And Manning lit up this one dude, uh, I don't think his number was even listed on the roster. Like it wasn't even a walk on, but um, he like, I don't think either the helmet got loose or it popped off, but it was a pretty intense hit. Um, so that was just a fun little nugget. Also Braylon Addison, Brian, sorry, not Braylon. Brian Addison had a one handed pick at one point and that was pretty awesome. But um, yeah, that's all I really got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think that's about it. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we went a while going through practice notes and, of course, the Connerly thing. Um, otherwise, I mean, I think that the one thing that we have to mention is uh, Oregon did get another commitment from Tavita Pomee. I, I really don't know if that's right at all. I, I'm going to um, leave that one alone. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't have that much to say on it, honestly. Uh, I haven't really dove into his film yet sadly uh i will tell you though qb11 has dove into his film and there's an eval mm. on scoop duck so go check that out if you want to uh otherwise i guess we should mention uh just a couple of transfers recently uh from oh, yeah. oregon 
uh, Jalen Jeffers and Jonathan Dennis. Um, not much to say other than, uh, you know, I wish those guys well for sure. I think we'd, we'd hinted a few times just that, you know, the offensive line group, group was one that was a little bit bloated uh, and we didn't know exactly who maybe, but expected some transfers from that group. And so mm-hmm. uh, to see those guys leave is, you know, not ideal, certainly, uh, but it's a necessity in terms of numbers. And, uh, well, I think they both had, you know, have some potential, and I hope that they do really well at their next spots. They also, you know, aren't starter, starters for Oregon, and there are other options in the program that I think make them not, you know, not – so that either of those decisions super change the outlook for Oregon long-term on the offensive line. Um, And otherwise, uh, I'll I'll also say uh, Ashford, Robbie Ashford, and Trey Benson both generating some positive buzz I saw on Twitter Mm -hmm. at their respective spring games in uh, Tallahassee, Florida, and Auburn. Anything else you got? Nope uh scholarship check i think we're at three over Mm. Uh, i gotta i gotta double check the spreadsheet again but i I think we're at three over so expect three more guys to get cut at some point or just to not show up or something um so yeah thank you for listening to this uh we we very much like the fact that uh people keep coming back to listen to this even if we don't post weekly i think if we had the in the off season, at least if we posted stuff like weekly in the off season, I don't know that we have enough content to fill our full episodes. I think it's better that we kind of wait and then do more general things, but I don't know, maybe that'll change the, the next time we talk. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's honestly just a, a logistics thing with both of us too. I mean, you've been doing awesome stuff covering some of these practices and personally I've been, you know, bouncing around. I was on spring break and then, I'm figuring out all the normal senior graduating, where I'm going to live, how I'm going to get paid and feed myself, uh, and all those things that have drawn me away from podcasting duties. But thank you guys for listening. And yeah, also sorry if you can hear all this noise in my background. My couple (laughs) people just arrived at my house, and I I think you're good. But who knows? (laughs) All right. Well, go ducks, right? Yeah, go ducks.